Good morning, Christ Community. My name is Chris Blackman. I'm one of our pastoral interns here, and I'm really grateful to be bringing you God's Word today in our third week in our Advent series through the first three chapters of the book of Matthew. If you have your Bible, please turn with me now to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through verse 12. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let me start off with this question. Uh, who would you be most surprised to see sitting next to you in church? Maybe uh, it's uh, someone of a different religion, maybe wearing their garb. Uh, maybe it's that family member that you think is very far from the Lord. Uh, when I was growing up in Nevada, we were going to a very large church, and my mother was in a ladies' group uh, with one woman whose son had converted to Buddhism. And not just like, like to meditate, but I mean, he shaved his head, he wore the robes, he lived in a monastery. And the son was visiting his mother and said he wanted to go to church with her, and she was thrilled. But he showed up in church, you know, shaved head, robes on, everything. And people were quite curious at the sight of uh, a Buddhist monk here in a Christian church. Many times we're uh, surprised when those we don't expect to show up in our churches, uh, in our communities, show up. And like I said, maybe that's someone uh, that is from another religion. Uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, a family member who's far from the Lord. Maybe it's a homeless person, you know, someone who, by the way they're dressed, you can tell that maybe they've been living on the streets or um, are really struggling financially. Or maybe it's even your gay neighbor who has seemed to be hostile to Christianity and yet one day shows up and wants to sit next to you. My uncle is a retired pastor, and 
Uh, he does some trainings with churches on how to reach the poor. And one day he asked a church, uh, you know, what if, uh, what would you say if a hundred homeless people, you know, said that they had come to the Lord? And one of the church members said, well, I'd say hallelujah. And he said, amen, hallelujah. But now those hundred homeless people, they want to come to church with you. How do you respond to that? I think it's when the rubber meets the road, right? When those that we don't expect show up to our churches, show up in the kingdom of God, then we're really challenged with what it means to ultimately be saved by grace and not by merit and not by any cultural standard other than the gospel. The key truth I want us to think about as we go through this passage today is that God calls the least likely and the most undeserving to worship his son, King Jesus, and join his kingdom. And cheer up, brothers and sisters, because uh, if you often look at the person sitting next to you as uh, maybe unlikely or undeserving to be here, well, the Bible tells us that so are you, and so am I, right? that we are saved by grace alone. As Ephesians 2 so clearly states, we were dead in our sins until the grace of God came, us, came into us and brought us to life. And we saw last week that that is Jesus' plan for the world is to come into our hearts and bring new life where there was none. So we're going to be looking at this today in this passage of uh, what is called here the wise men, but has also been called the magi, or even in some traditions, uh, the three kings. Right? And the first thing we're going to look at today is God's gracious invitation to us. It says here in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, uh, you know, to us who have heard maybe this story many times, if you grew up in church, maybe you were even in a nativity play at some point and played a wise man, uh, this doesn't sound so shocking. But if we are putting ourselves in that time and place in the ancient world, uh, these men are not Jews, right? They are not followers of God in any way. Now, actually, the term wise men uh, could be translated magi, which is where we get our word magician from in English, right? Or sorcerer. Uh, that there's a good chance that uh, in, they were living in the East, possibly in Babylon, and that they were practice, practicers of you know, uh, things like uh, astrology uh, and kind of ancient philosophy, but that was often mixed up in a lot of mysticism of, you know, well, if the stars are in this alignment, uh, then, you know, this is going to happen in the world. And maybe even they tried to practice some form of magic or sorcery. And so for these men who are clearly pagans, clearly, uh, clearly foreigners, and clearly... Uh, coming from a far way here to worship the Lord, right? It would be a surprise to any of God's people that these people would show up saying, hey, God is inviting us to come and worship his king, and we want to take part in that. But that's the amazing thing about the God we worship, is that he graciously invites the least likely and the most undeserving, right? That he would invite these these foreigners, uh, these, these pagans, uh, maybe even magicians or sorcerers, right, who, who know very little about this God, 
And yet they seem to be the most excited here to come and worship King Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing that God uses uh, like the star to lead them there. And many scholars have tried to figure out like, is this a comet in the sky? You know, is this uh, like a shooting star? What exactly is going on here? We don't 100% know, but what we do know is that, you know, God is taking advantage of, right, the natural created world that he has made and, and showing out his glory in it in a way that's calling these men ultimately to Jerusalem to learn more. And Romans 1 tells us something very similar, right? That all of creation reflects the glory of God and invites us in uh, to get to know him more, right? That the nature itself is proclaiming God's gracious invitation. And so we see that uh, these, these magi or wise men show up and they want to know more about this king of the Jews. And uh, Matthew really loves contrasting right, their reaction to uh, seeing the star and connecting it maybe with a Jewish prophecy of a king coming with Herod and the high priests and the scribes in Jerusalem at the time, right? Jews, right? God's people who have the scriptures, who have the Old Testament, um, seem to almost be completely taken by surprise. It's like these, these foreigners, these pagans, these idolaters probably are like showing up to a party and they're like, well, we got the invitation, but how about y'all? Like, where's the party at? And Herod and the high priest seem to say like, party, what party? <laughs> what, what birthday party are we throwing for this king that we don't even know about? It's an amazing thing that uh, these pagans uh, are so moved, even just by like a sign in nature to come and worship God. You know, and uh, John Calvin in one of his commentaries briefly says like, oh man, if these pagans can be so moved by a star in heaven, to come and worship God, then woe to us who have God's word and yet seem to be so unmoved, right? That Herod and the chief priests and the scribes, they had God's word, right? They knew that there were prophecies about a Messiah and yet they weren't actively looking for a Messiah. It seemed that they were more worried about uh, keeping the political peace than seeking out the King of Kings, the Messiah who will make all things right, whose government will rest on his shoulders, right? It says very clearly in verse 3, when Herod and the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. That when they hear news of the King of the Jews, they aren't overfilled with joy and excitement. They aren't running off to go find him. Instead, they're troubled. They're worried. Herod quickly assembles all these chief priests and scribes to try to figure out where this Messiah, this Christ, is to be born. And they find out from the Word of God, from Micah chapter 5, right, that in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That they, they look to God's words for answers, but not because they want to actually go and worship this king, worship the Messiah, but because they want to find a way to, to try to stop the Messiah. They don't see Jesus as uh, 
someone who's going to save them from their sins or even save them from the Romans. Now, Herod and these other chief priests and scribes seem to see Jesus as a threat. They see him as maybe messing up their, their best laid plans, right? Interrupting their relatively peaceful lives. That the word of God isn't a gracious invitation to them, but it's actually a bother and a trouble. And so let me ask us this question. How do you respond to the word of God? How do you respond when you hear the gracious invitation of God to come and worship the king? You know, I think we all yearn to be people like these magi, these wise men, who are excited, who would leave their homes. You know, one commentary said they might have traveled 40 days by camelback to get to Jerusalem, uh, hundreds of miles, right, just to come and worship the king. And yet, maybe we don't respond with, uh, you know, violence and scheming like Herod, but maybe we respond with dullness with cold hearts, that the grace of God has become something that we've heard so much that just doesn't affect us like it used to, that even when God is calling out to us in His grace, we're saying, ah, like, I'm tired of grace. Can't you just give me a to-do list? Or maybe it's that the grace of God can even be seen sometimes in the way He confronts our sin that God, even through judgment, can ultimately bring us back in His grace. But we want the grace of God to just be uh, a warm bath, a soothing pep talk. We don't want the grace of God to come in and change our hearts. That's one key difference between the Lord and ourselves, is that the Lord is not satisfied (laughs) with the redemptive work going on in us. He wants to see it brought to completion in Jesus Christ, whereas we are often satisfied with just a little bit of grace, just a little bit of sanctification. Lord, just make me a slightly better person, and that's enough for me. The sad irony here is that those who have the Word of God and should be most attentive to what God is doing seems to be the most hostile to it. Those who want to avoid what God is doing through His Word and in the world. They don't hear a gracious invitation. They hear a challenge to the world as it is and to the comforts and securities that they have achieved. And so let me ask you again, how do you respond to the Word of God? Every time we hear and read it, God is graciously inviting us to once again experience the joy of His saving grace through His Son, Jesus. He's inviting us to come and worship the King, we who are the least likely in the most undeserving. We who, apart from God, were lost and were dead in our sin. We who were no better than these magi from the East. Have you grown dull to the word? Have you grown frustrated or even hostile to it? Because you know that King Jesus doesn't want your perfections and your achievements. No, he wants you to come and worship his glorious work, his saving grace. King Jesus is calling us to come to worship him and to lay down our treasures before him and receive the ultimate treasure in Christ. Remember that King Jesus is inviting us even now as you hear the word. I love the way that Frederick Dale Bruner talks about the shock of the Magi 
coming to ask about where is this king of the Jews. He says this, The Magi were outsiders both in race as Gentiles and in profession as astrology. Yet they were invited to the party by placing the Magi in his Christmas story as he had the Gentiles in his genealogy. Matthew wishes to say that God surmounts racial and moral barriers to his saving work by calling to the Son those considered most unworthy. That God's gracious invitation is to say, it doesn't matter your background, whether your family grew up uh, worshiping Jesus or not. It doesn't matter even if you have sinned greatly in the world. Right? Our God is so loving and so gracious. He is inviting us all to come and to join Him, to join Him in worship, to join Him in the great joy of God's transforming kingdom here and now. Brothers and sisters, don't let your hearts become dull to the gracious invitation of God through His Word to you today. As shocking as it may be to some of us that someone so foreign to the church right, would walk in our doors and want to sit down next to us, at the same time, right, we shouldn't we really shouldn't be shocked at all that God would fulfill His promises, right? That God's promises are true and that He really would call people lost in sin, that He really would call people from all over the world, that He is inviting us to come and worship the King of Kings. So that's the second point I want us to look at, is that there is a King who is worthy of our worship, and that is Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question, what makes Jesus worthy of our worship. Have you ever thought about that? What makes him worthy of our worship? And our go-to answer, which is 100% correct, is that he's the very son of God. He is God incarnate, right? That God is completely worthy in and of himself of our worship, right? That he doesn't even have to prove his worth to us. He is already fully perfect in his love, in his justice, in his righteousness. He is worthy of our worship. And yet, throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus over and over again prove to us in new and more beautiful ways just how worthy He truly is of our worship. Like I said earlier, Matthew loves comparing right, uh, the kingship of Herod and then ultimately this king of kings in right now here, baby Jesus. And isn't that so ironic that Herod seems so threatened by like a little baby? I mean, come on, like, if you know anything about uh, the history of King Herod, like, he was this great ruler over Israel at the time, appointed by the Romans, and he was known for, like, creating great building projects. He helped rebuild the Jerusalem temple. He built all these cities uh, and giant palaces, very powerful, very rich, uh, was a military leader. But he was also ruthless. Like, he would wipe out his enemies. He killed his own family members just for being suspicious of them even without much proof at all, right? That this guy who was so big and so bad, right? They even call him Herod the Great in history books. He was threatened by a little baby child, right? That Herod at least seemed to know that if this truly is the Messiah, then his kingdom ultimately will fall, right? That his kingdom is not eternal. Right, that a kingdom built on unrighteousness ultimately cannot stand compared to our righteous and worthy king. And so Herod, right, he comes up with this scheme. He sends the wise men to go to Bethlehem. And he said, you know, when you find this, 
this Messiah, come and tell me because I want to worship him too. And Robbie will talk next week of the consequences of Herod's scheme here. But these, these wise men, these magi, they go and once again the star leads them uh, when they're in Bethlehem, finally to where Jesus is living. And it says, uh, when they came to the place where the child was, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Right, that what these wise men, what these magi recognize is that even in this little baby child, Right? God is bringing about the fulfillment of his promises. He's bringing about this holy new kingdom in the world. And Jesus in and of himself is worthy of our worship as the son of God. But as an earthly king as well, right, we see that Jesus is even more worthy of our worship by not being born in giant palaces, by not growing up in the places that Herod is living, right? not seizing earthly power in wicked and sinful ways, but instead living the life of, uh, as the son of a regular average carpenter, right? The, the son of an average mother. And Jesus comes to identify not with, you know, the rich and powerful of the world, but just with common humanity. That he came not to exemplify his own glory in and of his human flesh, but to point people constantly to that gracious invitation of God. That what makes Jesus even more worthy of our worship? Well, it's his humility to come and identify with us, poor humanity. We see that, you know, what Herod really wanted is he wanted all the benefits of the kingdom, but he didn't really want the king. But what Matthew is trying to emphasize here is, look, if you want the kingdom, like these magi and these wise men did, first you have to come to the king. First you have to bow down and recognize that there is no amount of treasure in this world. There's no amount of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right, that can ever bring about the joy and the fulfillment that God's kingdom can through his son Jesus. That if you want to be in the kingdom, first you must come and worship the king. The true king is found here in just a common, everyday, average home, right? It's not a home full of riches and treasure. And the wise men, they don't come saying, Jesus, now that we found you, uh, you know, would you give us some wonderful gift? No, instead, they give him all they can. Jesus in uh, John 6 runs into a similar problem, right? After feeding the 5,000, he tells the crowds, look, you're just following me not because you want to learn more about God and worship God. No, you're just following me because I gave you bread. And he's saying, look, there are many people who want these blessings of the kingdom, but they don't really want Jesus. They don't really want the king. How shocking that Matthew has to point out to God's people that it takes these, these foreigners, these pagans, these idolaters to actually show us the good news. That it's not about coming to Jesus and getting stuff from him, but recognizing the greatest treasure is him. The greatest treasure is Christ himself. That Jesus didn't need to live in a palace full of treasures because he knows that he ha is the greatest treasure for God's people. 
right? That he doesn't need to keep his power by sinful, scheming means like Herod. No, that his power comes from the very authority of his word. That as Colossians tells us, Jesus was there in the beginning of creation when God spoke and the worlds came into existence. That he doesn't need, right, to eliminate his enemies in a sinful way. No, one day every knee shall bow, as Philippians 2 tells us. That the greatest treasure we can have is not earthly securities and pleasures and comforts, no, our greatest treasure is Christ. And we can bring him our treasures and lay them down at his feet because in Christ we have a treasure that can never spoil or fade, that ultimately fulfills us. That we can leave our homes and travel long distances to proclaim the gospel. We can leave our homes and even defy leaders to go and worship the king because he is worthy of it. Because we don't have to fear the powers of this world because our king in heaven is greater than all of them. I love, uh, you know, they quote here Micah chapter 5, and it's such a beautiful passage. And, you know, Matthew's really emphasizing that the Messiah, the ruler of God's people, is going to come from Bethlehem. But uh, if you read on in Micah chapter 5, just the next couple of verses, it tells us even more about what Jesus came to do here on earth. It says this in Micah 5, starting in verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Why is Jesus worthy of our worship? What did he come to do? Well, one of the many reasons Jesus is worthy of our worship is because he is the promised ruler from ancient times who has come to shepherd his people, to care for them well. And not just to shepherd them temporarily, but to dwell secure with them. And ultimately that he will be their peace. And that peace on earth is not secured by men like Herod wiping out their enemies and building great monuments to themselves. No, peace on earth is brought through the King of Kings and the Lord of Lord Jesus Christ, in which every knee will one day bow. A great king is measured in the way he cares for his people, especially the poor, especially the lowest in society. These foreigners to Israel, these uh, potential idolaters and pagans, right, they would not have been considered much right, in the nation of Israel at the time. And yet we see that they show up to the party to worship the king. It's amazing those who actually show up, who respond to the gracious invitation of God, to the good news. Let me read you this quote from John Calvin in his commentary. It says this, This is a very remarkable narrative. God brought Magi from Chaldea to come to the land of Judah for the purpose of adoring Christ amidst the tokens, not honor, not of honor, but of contempt. It was a truly wonderful purpose of God that he caused the entrance of his son into the world to be attempted by deep meanness and yet bestowed upon him illustrious ornaments, both of commendation and of other outward signs, that our faith might be supplied with everything necessary to prove his divine majesty. Right, that Jesus came and 
was born into a very average common family, not in Jerusalem in a palace, but in Bethlehem, the son of a carpenter. And yet, so many ways, Jesus over and over again proves that he truly is the king we need, that he is worthy of our worship, and that the right response to him is to come with faith and worship in our hearts like these magi, to bow down and say, look, every treasure we have is worthy of you, right? And we will happily give it up so that we could take part in the treasure that is Christ. It's an amazing that God has called the nations to come and worship him. And so let me close and ask you this question and thinking about the opening of, you know, God calling the least likely and the most undeserving to come into his kingdom. How does God's loving call to people from many cultures over many centuries to come and worship the Messiah both humble and encourage you? Right? That God has been doing this work from long ago and is still doing it now and will keep doing it long after we stop walking on this earth. That his gracious invitation continues to spread out into the world, calling those who in many ways would shock us when they come into the kingdom. Uh, I was invited a couple of years back to preach at a Korean church, and I was talking with the worship leader right before the service, and they were talking about one of the hymns we were going to sing that Sunday, and he was saying, man, it's so joyful that like we can sing this hymn that was written like in the 1600s in Europe, right, uh, to someone who didn't even speak English at the time, that those people would write this hymn and, and sing the same hymn to the same God, and that we who are in a very different culture in a very different time and even speak a different language can praise the same God and by God's grace even use the same hymn and the same words to praise and worship him. Right, that that's the power of our Almighty God, that that's the power of King Jesus, right? to call out into the world, that God is calling you to take part in something way bigger than ourselves, way bigger even than our little church. Right? He's, we are a part of a much bigger body, of a global kingdom that Jesus is continuing to grow and transform the world. What amazing grace that God has, not just for us, a small community, no, but that God would have enough grace for all those he call over many generations, many cultures. That it's not uh, something in and of you know, American culture or the English language that is so amazing that God loves us. No, he loves us because of what he's done for us and through his son Jesus, because he has created us and we are his children. Right? And that God has so much love that he would call out to the world and invite them in. We are a part of something much bigger than ourselves. King Jesus has been and will continue to be doing this work, to calling in the least likely, the most undeserving. So will we join with the Good Shepherd who wants to bring about true peace on earth in his kingdom? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that it challenges us. Lord, we pray that we would come and worship you with joy, uh, like the Magi here. Lord, we admit that often our hearts grow dull to your word, but your grace is powerful and it is sufficient for us. So Lord, help us to worship you with joy today. Help us to not be shocked when your word comes true and brings in those 
who in many ways seem unlikely and undeserving of your grace. Because we too are unlikely and undeserving of your grace, and you have called us in. Lord, help us to be a community that proclaims the good news with such a gracious attitude. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.